thank you very much, Ian. And um, just before I welcome the, uh, the panel up to the stage, uh, just a, a brief word about uh, me and how I see some of these, uh, these debates. For those that don't know me, my name is Tom Heap. I'm a, a freelance working principally for the BBC on uh, Country File on BBC One and uh, Costing the Earth on BBC Radio 4, which is the uh, uh, environment, uh, science, uh, rural uh, documentary there. And I was just looking back um, at uh, some of the stories I've done in uh, literally the last sort of cascade of stories I've done over the last six or eight weeks and, and they weren't headline science, but they all had an incredible degree, <coughs> excuse me, of uh, science or engineering challenge behind them. Um, I was reporting on the impact of, uh, of Brexit on labour for agriculture and particularly for, for, for growers. And there, of course, the questions of could we do more robotically is one of the um, issues that underline it. I was um, looking at... Uh, capturing more CO2 in our soils and this idea, this four per 1,000 idea that if we could capture more carbon in our soils, we could help to alleviate uh, man-made climate change. And that's about agroecology, min-till, no-till, agroforestry, all these developing scientific ideas on the boundary between um, uh, what may be considered traditional hard science, chemical science, if you like, and also some of the science that we're learning from the more holistic or or the more organic side. I went to Holland and was looking at the problem of how they've got so many cows, they're literally drowning in manure. And uh, Well, not literally, that is wrong. Uh, But... uh, uh, Overuse of that word, I'll get told off. Uh, but they are, uh, their water supplies are so polluted by phosphates and nitrates, they're actually having to cull cattle because they can't do it. You know, surely there should be a technological solution to use it to, to dealing with uh, the waste from cows. I went to Denmark and was looking at antibiotic resistance in their in their pigs and the problem they have in in anti. Um, um, basically, um, MR, strains of MRSA transferring from pigs to humans and the danger that that's causing there. Incidentally, while I was there, there was someone who was telling me a different story about how they're developing pig pens that will actually um, help to alleviate the methane problem that we have with so many animals, in some ways less than pigs, they're not ruminants, but they still give off a lot of methane, and actually trying to... Because methane is heavier than air, which is why when you have a gas leak it sits on the floor that they're actually trying to suck the methane out of the bottom of pens. What, what a, you know, if they can get that to work, what a genius you know, technological solution that would be. Um, even, even we did a, sh- a story about sheep rustling and people um, you know, turning up to fields and, 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 and stealing sheep. Well, one of the solutions to that is people talking about actually putting trackers in the stomachs of sheep. Once again, a, an issue that's amenable to a technological um, solution. And then finally, I was in the US just recently uh, filming uh, some stuff for a panorama on food farming and Brexit. And we were looking at some farming practices there, which we might find troubling in terms of using uh, growth hormones and antibiotic, uh, more use of antibiotics for sort of uh, uh, in, in a preventative medical way. But yet they were absolutely insistent that what they were doing was science based. In America, that was their analogy of it. Was it was science based, and that uh, the concerns that people had about it were non-scientific. So once again, the language is uh, is being used, is being recruited. So, you know, it, without a doubt, science has a huge role to play in delivering this sustainable future. And I was reading through the notes, and I was thinking, you know, we're looking at science for, sustain- for sustainability. 
science to fill in some of the knowledge gaps of the public, science to deliver captivating thrills to the audience when they turn up to this exhibition, clearly science to help to enhance farming and farming practice itself, science for farming careers, to make people realise that it, you know, it's, a, it's a developing modern kind of area and, and, and there are hugely challenging and interesting scientific roles there and of course science for health in, in the world of nutrition, um, of, of the food that we eat, I think an area which is, which is often, <coughs> excuse me, often overlooked uh, um, in, in, this, in this debate. So um, I'm going to get the panel up, but first of all, I would encourage people, if they're interested, uh, to, to tweet about this and about the forthcoming, um, ex um, sorry, sorry, forthcoming display with the hashtag feeding tomorrow. Um, some of the panellists have uh, Twitter handles as well. I don't know them off the top of my head. If you're interested, mine is at Tom Heap Media. Um, if others want to tell you theirs when they, when they talk, they're very welcome. <coughs> now, it's time to bring the panel up to stage into our little boy band, or boy and girl band, I should say, arrangement here, where we, uh, where we get our, our stools. So uh, please come up in any order. Just come up together, and then when you've taken... I don't mind where you sit. It's not an adversarial thing, so uh, please uh, come to the stage and... Uh, these, these, we've got to sit in this, uh, yeah, the stools are very, very we, we have to get it, in a boy band thing we'd all get up one at a time and do our little bit, do our little bit at the front with a little sachet, but I, I think, think we'll keep you, on, you can do that if you want, but uh, otherwise, uh, uh, by all means, um, <coughs> stay seated. Right, um, so let's... Uh, Let's get our in introductions uh, sorted. So, um, uh, starting on my right, we have uh, Bryony Matheson, who works for Olam, who she said herself was kind of the, one of the biggest companies you've never heard of, but uh, they're involved <laughs> in the growth, growing and supply of an awful lot of foods, uh, particularly internationally, cocoa, rice, uh, coffee, and she said, you know, almost all edible nuts come by, by them. And as someone who's uh, obsessed by nuts, apart from... Marzipan, that's a bit of a no, but uh, apart from that, uh, nuts are very much in my diet, so I was very, very impressed about that. So very much in the sort of global uh, food uh, supply. Uh, then we have uh, Andrew Frame from uh, Arm Holdings here. Um, Andrew is sort of leading their, their development of agricultural technology. He described himself as a, as a thought leader in this, both in the production side and in the food chain. Then we have uh, Angela Karp from Rothamsted, one of, if not the leading um, science bases for looking at plant science, the development of, of, of new strains, what we can do in terms of nutrition and growth and productivity and the environment and all these things, Rothamsted is the place to go for that. And then uh, on the end, uh, Mike Barry, who is uh, from M&S and is, I think, the head of sustainability, is that right, Mike? Yes. That's the uh, title. And uh, uh, is, to anyone in this area, he's known as an absolute champion of this whole uh, debate. Now, I'm going to kick off with a, a question, um, really, to, to, for all of you, and, which I think gets the heart of something that, that Ian kind of hinted at. But when it comes to agriculture and food, science is not always acknowledged as an unalloyed good thing. In fact, a lot of people out there, rightly or wrongly, have a suspicion of science as an ingredient in food. And, you know, th this may come from some of our, our, our past experiences. It may come from the fact that food is marketed entirely on the sort of naturalness, even though it isn't, uh, or frequently isn't. Um, so um, is science, or how do we prove that science is a good ingredient and a vital <laughs> ingredient in food? Mike. So just a brief introduction as a humble shopkeeper among some very, very clever <laughs> scientists and engineers. Um, Marks and Spencer 
only sells 7,000 different food product lines. If I have my colleagues from Tesco, Sainsbury's here, they might be talking about 30,000 or 40,000 lines in their shops. Behind those, that product, 4% um, market share of food in the UK, Marks & Spencer is supplied by several hundred food factories, many of them in the UK, 20,000 farmers. Again, 4% market share, 20,000 farmers. And behind them, thousands of raw material sources, good people like Olam, many of the commodity producers putting raw materials into our supply chain. Every single stage of that has in some shape or form got a science element to it in terms of both managing risk and developing opportunity, new, new, new opportunities for the marketplace. Critically for us, science falls into two things. There is the solution that we will really dwell on today. The artificial intelligence, the robotics, the personalisation of, of, of health. Incredible things. But just as important to us as a shopkeeper is to how 32 million M&S customers respond to that science. And again, I don't need to labour the point to say back in the 1990s when genetic modification was introduced into the UK, hugely controversial. Whether that technology was good or bad, let's just put one side for 30 seconds, it was landed very badly in terms of societal acceptance. Now, that's 20 years ago. We should learn from that. But if I look at the revolution that now lies ahead of us, the opportunity to feed the world, deliver better value for our customers, better value in terms of how we're managing our supply chains, the acceptance, the public acceptance of these wonderful new science tech and engineering solutions we develop is utterly at the heart of it for me. So as much as I'm interested in the science, I'm interested in how people respond to the science as well. And any thought about how we could, brief thought about how we could boost that public acceptance? So again, I mean, that's why I'm sat here, because if you look at the critical role that people like the Science Museum play, millions of people interact with science in that way. Clearly, I've got all got, or we, many of us have got kids at school learning the science, and then so quickly it's forgotten. They step into the wider world, different careers, science put behind them. People like the Science Museum are absolutely putting practical science at the heart of people's lives. And what I want to be very clear about is there's not a right or wrong pathway here. You can be the most scientifically literate person in the world and reject a particular technology for very good reasons. But what we need is people that understand the basics of science and able to make decisions, rational decisions, so we can take society forward. And again, the Science Museum and others are actually absolutely at the heart of that. You know, M&S can't run a public information campaign for its customers about science. We depend upon the wider ecosystem in British society that accepts science, teaches it well, and brings it to life. Not in the way that you need a PhD to understand, but in the way that every man can understand. Angela, and Rotham sort of very much at the sharp end of this public either embrace or, 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 or occasional abhorrence of science. How do you see it? I'll answer the question by a very slight digress. So when, when my son was six and my daughter was three, we were buying houses, and I showed them a choice of three houses and asked them which one they liked best, and they answered the first one because it had more toys. And it, <laughs> it was only at that point that I realised I had not explained to my two children that when you move house, you take your stuff with you. And to me, that was a solitary lesson about communication, and I think that's what my point is about science and scientists. Scientists find it very hard to communicate in a way that understands the receptor of that message because it's not the things they say necessarily, it's the things they forget to say. And I think in terms of the GM debate and all of these new technologies about crop and animal improvement... What we forget to say is what was done naturally. How did we get our crops anyway? You know, what, what, what do we consider? This whole sh group of things that people already accept are on their shelves. Many things have happened to those products mm. before they get them. But GM was introduced in some kind of, you know, way which didn't explain it in that concept. Mm. 
For me, the Science Museum has an enormously important role because it helps communicate and reach people in languages and in ways that even scientists don't manage to do because they understand better that receptive audience. Yes. Andrew, maybe slightly easier with the technological side that, that, that you're in, perhaps, rather than the, the, the biotech side of Andrew's, but I mean, do, you, do you see a resistance to, to, to science in, in, in your field, or do you think people embrace it straight off? Yeah, I think people are embracing it. I just think um, the, 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 it's not all there yet to enable people to do what they want to do. The building blocks are all there. Um, you know, for, for agriculture puts a certain second layer of difficulty in terms of using technology, in, in my mind. You know, you, when you have a light switch on the wall, you know, it, it just it's there and you switch the light on and off. But when you have an agricultural scenario where maybe you've got a sensor out in the middle of a field and um, at the beginning of spring, it's an open environment and a radio signal can go, you know, 10 kilometres or whatever. And then six weeks later, you can have a wall of corn, you know, maybe a mile thick. And trying to get technology to, to, to cope with those changes. And agriculture has this kind of changing environment, which makes it even more challenging. Um, but the, I think the building blocks are there. We've got, you know, the technology that ARM does enables you to do very low power uh, technology. You combine that with... Um, some, uh, some battery technology. I think battery technology is still evolving a lot. Mm. Um, your average robot, even um, Pepper in the Science Museum, I suspect, can't last more than a few hours of shaking a child's hand. Um, but if you wanted to have a, a robot kind of you know, doing the harvesting in a field, you know, you, it can't just keep going back and being recharged every two hours. So the, the, some technology is there, some of it um, uh, is still evolving. But... Um, the building blocks are all there. I think um, it just needs people to be able to um, put the stuff together and make it work. I think the analogy I come up with is um, my mum will start using um, uh, light bulbs in the house that you can control from a mobile phone when all she has to do is take it back to a house and plug it in and press a button on a mobile phone. At the moment, you have to type in your wireless password and all that kind of stuff. You know, your average farmer isn't going to be able to network an IPv6 network in his, in his farm to make sure all the technology works. It has to work out of the box um, and provide... Well, so IPv6 <laughs> is... <laughs> it's an internet protocol to allow us to have the trillions of devices that will be connected to the internet of things. There was, we would run, in the same way we ran out of phone numbers a few years ago, we were going to run out of IP addresses. So okay. that was IPv4, we're now on IPv6. Bryony, uh, you've got a, an international perspective as well because your, your suppliers and your, your, your business itself is international. Is this slight ambivalence about science and in the food chain, is it something uniquely British or uniquely European or is this something that's, that's found throughout the world because you know, the Science Museum aims for global audience and ambitions? Yeah. I'm not sure which angle you were going to come I'm not necessarily <laughs> expecting that one. Um, so we're Singapore-listed company. And, for instance, if I take the GM debate, we currently, as a global company, as a board directive, have um, no GM in the food crops that we supply. So cotton, we are GM-enabled, as it were, but we do not supply any GM uh, in the food crops uh, from our, as a board directive. Uh, it's something our CEO passionately disagrees with. Okay. Um, well, why was the decision taken whenever it was? I, I think reputationally, because right. of the, the fear mm. factor. Um, so I think from our CEO's perspective and probably most of those of us working in the organisation, we would say, how do you, how do you actually produce 50% more food without using some form of scientific um, breakthroughs? And we see that very much as, as an inevitability. So, I mean, we're already looking at CRISPR, some of those technologies around genome. Genetic, yeah. 
um, or even cellular agriculture. So looking at some of the cellular agriculture is taking um, cells from meat and growing protein um, basically without needing livestock or slaughterhouses. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at those, looking at some of those breakthroughs for us, we we can't we can't imagine the growth required in uh, agricultural land or yield is going to create the food that's required to feed nine billion by 2050. So it, one way or another, we have to. And I, so I should also hold my hand up. I'm not a humble shopkeeper, but I'm actually not a scientist either. <laughs> I'm going to want to put that right out there straight away. So I head up global communications for Olam. And going back to being good communicators, one way or another, we have, I think, that those of us on, on these chairs, plus I know at one stage Unilever was going to be, oh, sorry, yes, Unilever were going to be here. So food manufacturers, we have to find a way of communicating, otherwise people are going to go hungry. We're going to have to communicate that these breakthroughs are not the enemy. Okay. Angela, what do you think there should be some of the priorities for this, uh, this exhibition at the uh, area of the Science Museum? I think some of the priorities for me would be... Uh, Obviously, there's some key challenges out there which are to do with the sustainability um, triangle in a way. So it's, it's not just about how do you manage the land in a way that's sustainable, but it's reaching in the societies where the food production is produced and the environmental footprint and this whole sort of envelope. And I think sometimes people see the economic piece pulling more than these other two parts, which are to do with the sustainability of the environment and the social aspects of, of food. Because... Food and, and growing food should also be part of societies. And I think that's one place where, in, the, you know, in, in developed countries, in the past, people knew where their vegetables and their milk came from, going back a long way, because a local farm would have been part of their community and would have been part of that. And now we've slightly disconnected that. So I think, for me, a challenge is all around what we mean, actually, by sustainability and actually conveying to people what that really means in simple terms. What do we mean by it? And what are the, some of the big challenges we're going to have to overcome to get to there? And why does it matter that we understand where our food comes from? And, I, you know, I don't understand or really care how this watch was, was made and, and who made it and where the ingredients came from. Why does it matter with food? I think, um, for me, it matters because people make big decisions, and we've been hearing mm. about this, about food. And, and I think they make those decisions now in a much more complex environment of food production than we knew 50 years ago. Mm. And conveying the complexity of that is quite hard for people. So they think, you know, why are we getting, you know, if I go to Marks and Spencer, why are my beans coming from Kenya? Mm. Why can't we get them locally? And surely it's more sustainable to produce them locally. Um, but they don't understand the whole story mm. of, you know, for example, if you produce something in a greenhouse over here, how much energy, how much water, how much etc. that costs, compared to, say, growing them somewhere else and yeah. creating them in. And I'm just taking that as an example. Mm -hmm. But the story is much more complex now. And actually conveying that, that story in a, in a way that people can grasp the main pieces is going to be so key. Isn't it mm -hmm. going to be key that we can sell this idea that science is for sustainability? Because... You could make an argument, some people would, that in the past when it comes to food and agriculture, science has been about profit and has been about productivity more than sustainability. And if we're really at a... a, a that's a very exciting point to be if we're really turning that corner. Mike, do you think we, you know, science is genuinely you know, delivering 
sustainability mm -hmm. as, as a priority in food and farming mm -hmm. rather than just productivity and profit now? Well, let, let's make a very important point here. We talk about this and we celebrate this thing called science. There are many different takes and pathways forward in science. I think you talked mm -hmm. about the states, very different perception yeah. on growth promoters than we might take, and that they talk, talk about that as science. So I think we have to be very careful here that we don't try and be in the 1950s, very paternalistic way and say there's one truth with science. And Ian, I think this is a real opportunity for your team, which is to open up discussion. Mm. There isn't neat answers. This is about society understanding the pros and cons of a particular way forward and having that discussion. And I think the great exhibitions in, in our lives are not static things that have learned to use a little bit of digital technology to put a, something up on a screen. They bring people together for rich discussions and debates like this. Now, we all come from a, you know, a particular skew and a particular background in involvement in the food industry as professionals. I think you know, a good science museum is reaching out to people, to schools, to involve them in these discussions almost as much as the displays are there. So I think, I think that's one challenge to us. I think the second thing, I think the point's been really made here. Let's understand where British society is. And I think our market research across those 32 million people will be very similar to what, what other supermarkets say. 10% of people passionately green, really informed, would be sat, you know, several million people from Britain, if you picked a random sample of 30 of them, put them in this room with us, they'd be pretty comfortable with the discussion. The other extreme, 20% who have zero interest in anything else beyond the immediacy of their lives. And let's respect that, that's the poorest sections of society. They face enormous day-to-day -day challenges getting through the day and the week. Why would they worry about you know, genetic modification or deforestation on the side of the world? And then two groups in the middle that we really need to focus on. There's 35% who are light green, who I absolutely believe are your target audience. Reasonably well-informed, very concerned about their future, don't want it to be difficult, don't want to have to pay more in my shops for better science and more sustainability. And they're your target audience. And then there's 35% who'll do it if everybody else does it. You know, if I don't take a carry bag and everybody else doesn't take a carry bag, that, that's so much easier. So I think that's the second part of it, it's just understanding the audience and British society out, out, out there as well. And then there's, there's probably one more angle on all, all of this, which is to ensure that the, the debate is seen to be inclusive, that involves all society. And again, we saw it with genetic modification back in the 1990s. Too many people try to exclude the Greenpeace of this world, and you didn't have to agree with everything that Greenpeace said about GM, to say they're a legitimate participant in, in, participant in this discussion. Don't just try and get a monoculture of acceptance with a few little voices on the side really have a heated discussion about the best way forward for society. So you think debate should be part Absolutely. of the display? Absolutely should be part. Yeah. And, and just on that, that, those figures, those percentages were really good. And presumably that, that other 35% that you say, you know, come along if everybody else is doing it, it'd be great if they came along to the exhibition just because it was fun, because it was entertaining. they say, you know, who, who would have thought, you know, I managed to milk a robotic cow or, or whatever, or I saw a you know, live thing here, something that's really fun. You know, we need that audience as well. Uh, Tom, I want other people to speak, but I'd be interested when we have the Q&A just to discuss this point about Kenya, you fly beans in, creates yeah. a good job in Kenya, creates a lot of carbon pollution, pros and cons of that sort of thing, but we'll pick mm. that up in a moment. It's the complexity, isn't yeah. it, of explaining exactly. that. Uh, <laughs> Just on, on, on the, uh, the, the, the supply chain, which concerns both of you, I mean, how do we drive sustainability in that? Bearing in mind that you, uh, quite a few people to here have talked about the feeding of the extra two, two and a half billion or whatever we're going to have by 2050. There are a lot of people that make the point that if we didn't waste what we did grow, and a lot of that happens in the supply chain, we wouldn't need particularly you know, to, to really be pushing the envelope on, on, on some of these other technologies. What, what, what are the priorities in the supply chain? Yeah, uh, so 
from, from our point of view, so we sit, um, we buy from 4.3 million small-scale farmers right at farm gate in emerging, pre predominantly in emerging nations. And as you say, a third of all food is wasted. It's about a trillion dollars a year is wasted in food loss. So we would look at that and say, if you, if you even cut that by 1%, you would generate something like $40 million that could actually predominantly end up in the pocket of small-scale farmers. But they're also part of the problem. And the problem at the 40% the, the that's lost in emerging markets is um, at a small-scale end in terms of post-harvest poor practice and um, storage and logistics issues. So if you look at where OLAM sits within that, some of the things that we work closely on and concentrate on in terms of waste is really because we are at Farmgate training, working with, with farmers in good agricultural practices, how can we really get down on the ground farmer, into farmer training? Um, that would be one piece. Another piece is access to finance, um, particularly if you look at women who have very poor access to, far, to finance but are 50% of the farmers in emerging countries. Um, we, 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 are, we are one of the largest microfinances in Africa, giving 0% interest finance to our farmers. Then it's helping them to organise. How do we get them into cooperatives so that rather than me putting my cocoa bag at the bottom of my lane, we get them to work together so that the logistics companies can come and... I mean, we are literally talking where, where we operate. You will be probably 30, 40 kilometres on a moped down a bumpy, not even a road, probably a track, to get some cocoa beans out. So how do we get them to work together in cooperatives to, to, to sort that out? Market access, then once we get their cocoa out, we have to give them access to global markets. And the final point really where we work now is increasingly looking at putting processing closer to point of production. And how does science and technology fit into some of those challenges? Because a lot of those were about uh, business or communications or things yeah. like that. I mean, how does science fit science in that piece? Technology. So, I, I mean, I, on the one hand, where you might be looking at cellular agriculture, I'd say often at the real coal face or that's right in, at the farm gate end it's the unbelievably basic stuff so although many of these people in that sense are, we will do a lot on e literally teaching people how to count so you know how can you run a business if you can't count if you can't read how do, how do you actually know if you've been paid fairly when you don't actually know how many bales of cotton you're handing over for instance so mm. one thing is about educating them to be entrepreneurs or, or um, uh, one, one aspect of that uh, but finally, then on the other end of that, the contradiction is the uh, penetration of mobile phones. And we're not talking smartphones, we're talking proper old-fashioned Nokia bricks, which get charged up via the richest man in the village who might own the only solar panel. And you go along and you charge your, solar, your, your mobile phone using his solar panel at the end of the day, where we can push very basic things about, it's going to rain tomorrow, make sure that you pick your cotton today. Yeah. Or the market price for cotton this week is X. Make sure that you sell to a respectable buyer and not to a middle, the wrong kind of middleman so that you get a fair price for your cotton. Um, uh, so that, that's the, that yeah. it's very basic. It's actually yeah. very basic. And it's probably too modest to say that arm are part of that Nokia brick. If it wasn't for arm, that <laughs> we Nokia made it small. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. Luke. It's a good thing. We're very, we're very, we're very happy with the Nokia brick. I mean, where do you think? Uh, the, 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 what are the sort of science and technology advances in the supply chain side that, that, that excite you? So um, the supply chain stuff is interesting. I mean, the, the, the access to, to mobile technology, so cellular farming from the cellular network perspective, as opposed to from the, the cell breakdown. Um, you know the, the 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 farms in 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 India and stuff now have uh, access to the, to this technology, and you know thanks to arm technology, it lasts two weeks or four weeks, depending on um on how often you use it, and you don't search the internet to see certain details, right? Um, but um the, the mobile technology mobile technology allows access to the farmers and allows the farmers 
um, to, to ask questions just using simple text messaging. So it's stuff that we were doing you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and it seemed quite advanced sending a text message to the guy next door. Um, but it, it's a vital communication mechanism that didn't exist um, uh, in, the, in the past, but is now being used um, more often. Even just the use of um, graphical representation for the mm. people who can't read. So you're kind of moving into a... A, in between, between Pictures. a smartphone yeah. and, and, a, and a, a, a phone that can just play Snake, yeah. for example. Um, but um, the whole, the technology with the supply chain is, is one that I'm, I'm just starting to look at a bit more deeply because you can imagine um, one of your, Mike, one of your 35% um, statistics is, um, you know, if you could go into a supermarket and scan a QR code and it would um, show you the farm where your food had come from, um, and you could even see the, the, the route it took to get to you. And you might decide to pick one lettuce over another because it's travelled from outside the village as opposed to from the other side of the country. Um, you know, that, that is, I suppose, that's a feasible thing that could happen. Now, how many people would actually want to do that? You know, is that just something that would get a different class of customer in? Would they, you know, are, are they, are they green-focused enough? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think um, the technology, the trace, food traceability angle of part of the supply chain is it will become more critical, especially in places like um, China, where, for example, the, the, um, the powdered milk scandal, um, you know, if we were able to say, well, all right, that, that, you know, or even in the UK with the, um, the, um, the shepherd's pie horse meat mm. um, scandal, you know, um, I think we actually solved that very quickly, con considering we didn't really know where everything was coming from. But the, the other angle for me is the... Um, it's called it's asset tracking, where at the moment, I think we know where all of the, the lorries are and stuff, so moving yeah. on from the, the, the mopeds and stuff. Um, logistics is actually quite a, a, a science in itself. You know, if you see the unloading of, of cargo ships when they come into Hong Kong or even into London. Um, but the actual um, health of the assets inside the container, that's not really tracked at the moment. Technology hasn't really evolved enough. But you can imagine just um, dropping a sensor at the earliest point possible, so not necessarily when the cocoa gets bagged, but when it starts to be processed. Yeah. And then you can track it, you know, just using little radio signals um, uh, periodically. Um, I think I, I saw something on TV, on, on, on the web just recently, where they were doing um, 3D printed apples and placing them within a bag of apples, and the sensor was built into that. So you weren't just looking at the first box when you opened the door and saying, oh, the apples are gone, so ditch the lot when actually it was just the first row because maybe the door wasn't insulated enough, but the apples inside mm. were actually okay. So instead of wasting a whole truckload, just, you know, maybe 5% yeah. actually got damaged. Some of this so, I, know, I know is happening already. We did um, looked at lettuces and et cetera coming from Mercia in southern Spain to, to, to Northern Ireland, and they've got trackers in the lorries that at any time they can look and see as that lorry makes its way what the humidity is, what the mm. temperature is, mm. um, you know, what speed the lorry's going, what time of day it is. So mm. some of that is, is already happening. I just wanted to ask you one thing on, on, the, on the robotics um, uh, side. Um, th that um, I, I felt, I, I sort of felt for a, for a while, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that robotics is having some difficulty penetrating in agriculture. And this appears to me because actually one of the most difficult fields for robotics, and forgive me, I haven't been to the exhibition yet, is this interface between the sort of physical. And, 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 and the mental, for want of another word, which is what a lot of agriculture is all about. And, and so well, oh, I've done lots of you know, stories about robotics and agriculture. I, I, I sort of feel it, it, it's got quite an uphill struggle in front of it, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 the, the robotics and autonomous, autonomous vehicles, kind of, a, a kind of similar aspects. Um, if, if you imagine when a, when a 
a, a farm labourer is harvesting uh, different crops, every single crop has a different action, whether it's turn it to one side or, you know, and even broccoli heads, you know, broccoli heads are harvested and over two or three attempts and they just pick the right size broccoli. So if you were to try and roboticize that, I don't know if that's a real word or not, but, you know, you'd have to have quite high spec vision technology and, and tractors that go up and down and, and only partic choose particular crops. Um, and then you've got all the, 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 the devices to actually harvest the crop as well. You know, you have to, I think they grow strawberries in some places differently so that they can use robots to actually harvest them. But that, that required a, mi a mindset change two or three years ago um, when they knew the process was going to come. I think the, 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 the stuff that Ian was talking about in terms of robots taking jobs, the problem I think in agriculture we have is we need robots to replace the jobs. Um, and no one robot can do every job. Mm -hmm. So each robot has to be designed specifically for a task and none of those specific tasks are really big enough for lots of investment yeah. to, to make the robots cheap. Because when I was doing this, this one regarding Brexit, we went to one of the, the food, uh, one of the soft fruit growers. They could get ro they were beginning to get more robots to look at the, the production line as it went along and sort out the duff blueberries mm. from the good ones. But in the field, there was such a range of jobs. You, you say the person is picking, but they're actually doing a, a great range processing of jobs, well, processing yeah. a lot of uh, information about the, the quality mm. and the position and the, everything of the fruit. And, and it's actually a much, we don't realise it, but it's a much more varied job, mm. coupled with the fact that you've got weather and you know, geography and all those complexities. Well, I think, you, I think on one of your Contrafile programmes recently, they, they talked about the, the resource that we would bring from Europe periodically during the summer. Um, they're actually, you know, experienced pickers. You know, yeah. you, it's not the, yeah. we can't just get people in from yeah. college anymore who want to pick strawberries over the holidays. You know, it's actually for the majority of crops, it's a skill um, mm. that we're going to lose. Mm. Now, whether we'll ever get robots to, to do that, I mean, the, the concept of a robot farm, <laughs> I think, is a good idea. It, it will, it'll be managed by exception as opposed to requiring lots of investment by the farmer. And, He'll only need to be involved when things are being flagged up as something is wrong. Everything else could be done. But I think we're, we're a while away from having little BB-8 robots driving around doing soil sensing and sending... It strikes pictures. me it might be like more likely in a kind of urban farm setting where you've got so much more under control anyway, it's all been done by mm. LED and you've got nice mm. smooth rolling floors like a JCB factory. Mm. Um, uh, I've seen a JCB man here, that must be why it came into my head. Um, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about health uh, because this is an area where... Um, of the sort of sustainability agenda, which I, I, I sometimes think gets forgotten, and, and I think you were talking about how the, the importance of, you know, improving the nutritional value of, of our basics. Yes, I think there is a, there is something we talk about as hidden hunger in the sense that there, a large number of people can get enough food, but they only have access to food which is of nutritionally low value, mm -hmm. and that's a, a huge area for research and science at the moment, <coughs> because there is a possibility to improve the quality of our crops so they're more nutritionally uh, valuable. For example, selenium in soils is a, an issue at the moment. There's a, a deficiency in selenium. And there are, there are ways that one could in, enhance the amount of selenium in grain. Is that the Brazil nut thing? Is that selenium or am I made I'm it just, up? I was just writing it down. <laughs> Walnuts, is, is it? Might be, okay. is it? I can't remember. Yeah. To be honest, well, I can't remember. But, it, but there is a deficiency in soils. And I, coming back to the soils, I think that... One of, another huge challenge is how do we know what's in our soils? Mm -hmm. So characterising soils is enormously difficult. And now there are spectroscopic methods of doing that which enable you to see a whole profile of what's in the soil 
meaning not just organic matter and the main things, but also the micronutrients and the elements. And I think that's going to be key. Because if we can uh, get really good maps of our soils, that could be linked to the fertilizer you do or do not have to add. And that could be linked to the crop that you get on the quality of the nutrition that you get out of the land. So that's the sort of area that is moving at the moment. So there is a project, for example, called AFSIS, the African Soil Information Systems Project, where they are scanning the soils of Africa in order to help direct fertilization of crops in Africa. And I think this is hugely important. Mm. So I think there is a role for robotics because that's a mechanically enormous yeah. job because, of course, you can, you've got to take the samples, for example, and get all those samples from huge areas and then use the spectroscopy to tell you that. So that, that's an important area. But, but just on, on health itself, and there's, there's been a lot of talk of farmers and, and a lot of people will talk about the wheat yield and they'll talk about you know, the, the, the tonnes per acre and the records for that and the fact that we've reached a bit of a plateau in the last 10 years and some people think that is down to soils. But should we, instead of talking about the yield in tonnes, should, should the metric change into something more to do with, with health and nutrition rather than mm. simply, well, volume, so it's, it's quality, not simply quantity? I think nutritional value of, of our basal crops that form a main part of our diets, and particularly not just our diets, because of course where we are, most of us eat a very broad range of food. But nonetheless, they are still the main crops out there that feed us one way or another in all sorts of forms. And there is a lot of research now in improving, and it's called biofortification, so improving the crop quality in terms of its nutritional value. And I, mm. I think this is, this is a very, very important area, including wheat. So we hope to get to the point where we're not just talking about wheat yields, but we're talking about nutritionally, nutritional yields that are important for people. Yeah. Mike, you had some views on this on the, on the shop shelf about how it might end up, technology might personalise the, the, the mm. health of our shopping basket. Well, uh, I'll answer that, but first a quick response mm. to some very good inventions there. As Britain has to compete more on a global scale in the world, the world of food and farming, post-Brexit, this opportunity to differentiate your commodities because they've got value-added mm. nutri nutrients added to them will be incredibly important. If we think we're going to beat the Ukrainian um, wheat barons, the Canadian wheat barons on, on cost per, per tonne, we ain't going to do it. We have to do something a little bit more special. So I think that point was, was, was extraordinarily well made. And the other discussion I thought was really rich there was about this, this point about science being used in the right way. So will robots replace human beings picking food anytime quick in the UK food industry? Probably not. It's just too complex. Remote sensors in soils, low cost, monitor what precision pesticide and fertiliser input yeah. you need. Absolutely, they'll happen much quicker. Blockchain to trace raw materials back down to our supply chains will happen very, very quickly. So moving on to the point about personalisation of food for the consumer. So I talked about 32 million MS customers, about half the British population. There's no two ways about it. We're about to see a well-being revolution in Britain. The NHS in the classical format, the social service in the classical format are retreating. We just can't continue to fund them in the, the old way or we don't feel that we're able to do it. People are living longer. They face new diseases, particularly mental well-being. We face a, a whole crisis about obesity in, in action. Increasingly, people are going to be asked for personalised solutions for the health of their medicine. That's GlaxoSmithKline. But then also from the food. Now... There's an awful lot of water to flow under that metaphorical bridge before people are truly able to hand over a DNA sample to a food retailer to tell them what to eat and personalise a diet for them. There's a huge issue to do with science, to do with privacy, to do with control. All those issues will, will, will swarm around us. But it will happen. 
clever people increasingly finding ways, it's starting in the States, where the you know, laws are a little bit laxer in, uh, about these things, but a significant minority of people are starting to look at what their own personal DNA profile means and how they protect and preserve it through the interventions. And food is one, the thing that you consume every day as opposed to a drug or a medicine uh, on a less frequent basis. So this whole well-being, the personalization of food, and linking that back to the agricultural inputs yeah. as well, so it won't be just about dropping a vitamin in at the manufacturing factory. It'll also be working back with nature as well. Yeah, this is going to come probably at the start of life, isn't it? Because, you know, there's obviously so many things that people are concerned about being, you know, lactose intolerant yep. or, or, or gluten or a lot of things that people have actual, um, well, sometimes perceived, actually, <laughs> have, have, have real, uh, real problems with. And then that will go on to a sort of you'd be better off if you ate more X or more Y. Yeah. Yeah. I think so it's also, though, about targeting interventions. So, for example, um, if you understood the soil characteristics of Africa, mm -hmm. you would know where they are zinc deficient mm -hmm. and where they are selenium deficient, and you would be able to target food health programmes that mm -hmm. actually work in the areas they need to and not waste them, in inverted commas, on those areas that they don't yeah. need that. And we're missing that sort of piece of information at the moment. And it's, just, it's not just about Africa, it's about all of us. Mm -hmm. It's connecting, really, that yeah. whole thing from the soil right the way to what we consume. It's very <laughs> interesting hearing uh, talk about soil, because conventional science, this is a bit of a, a, a broad sweeping slur, but um, conventional science and productivity has kind of slightly ignored soils mm. a bit over the last, oh, yeah, last 30 years. And, and, yeah. and, and, and to be fair to the, the, the Soil Association, who are at root about soil, even more than organics, you know, mm. there's a lot that, that they, were, they were saying and, and teaching, which is, you know, now coming into mainstream science that people are worried about soils. I want to open it up to the, to the floor because I think uh, we've definitely, mm. definitely reached that time. So don't be timid. Um, uh, put your hand up if you wish to, wish to ask a question. And uh, if you think it's relevant, you by all means say the organisation that you're from. There is a lady here. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, Can I just wait for the mic? Oh, yep. And oh, while we're waiting, I was going to say, if you want to direct it to someone in particular, that's quite useful. Um, uh, otherwise, because we won't necessarily get a chance for all four to ask answer every point. So yes. Um, good morning. Thank you. My name is Logan Patel, and my question is that there seems to be a disconnect in this debate between agriculture and food. I'm interested in food, mm. so I just want to talk about food and how we can re-engineer people's diets to the types of food that they eat and particularly in relation to um, the productivity of the food that we eat. I know you asked the question about nutrition but I'm not talking about nutrition, I'm talking about the value of the food that we eat. So for example, um, in my diet there's a lot of pulses and lentils which are high in high sources of protein for example and yet Pulses and lentils are not, you know, the thing that people buy. We're still wheat-based in, 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 the, in the shops. Mm. So my question is, how can we re-engineer and re-educate people's diets? Do you think we should? I mean, do you think... Yeah, absolutely, we should. Because why, why, why should we? Because it's about food wastage again. Um, you know, if at the moment it's cheaper to buy chicken than it is to buy green vegetables, well, certainly the types of green vegetables I eat... And, and, and I think if we could just change that equation a little bit, um, you know, that would... We haven't really addressed uh, efficiency and productivity of the food itself. And like, the, it's coming to you, as yeah. the shopkeeper, let me <laughs> respond to that. <laughs> so, so it raises two really important points. One is the point about choice, and this is the point about the 10% we made a little bit earlier. 
If we had the 10% in here of passionately green understood these issues, we could have a really rational discussion about your diet's X and it probably needs to be Y. And you could take people on that journey. I think for the vast majority of people to talk about that in terms of science is quite difficult. If you talk about health, you'll be healthier, you'll be happier, you'll live longer, you can save yourself money and you can have some delightful food as well, people start to, start to shift with you. So we've seen a real trend into what we call just, just for now flexitarianism where people are starting not to stop eating meat, but reduce. So meat reduction is a real... Um, it's visible trend. in your sales, is it's it? It's visible out there, not just in the M&S, but generally across the marketplace. So people are starting to become more aware of the diet they eat. And it's very clear, and I think science would tell it, you also would instinct, a, a plate that is good for you personally tends to be good for the planet as well. Not automatically, but tends to be sort of good overlap. So as we start to see this shift of diet to, towards the one that you consume, <coughs> People are starting, I think, starting to head in that direction. What we're very, very cautious about is lecturing, a public information campaign about it. It's got to because we, we, find ways of innovating, creating delightful food based upon the pulses, the lentils, etc. that go into it. And again, we've gone from the oldest. I remember working on the M&S shop floor at Christmas. We all come out of the office and do it. First 10 years at M&S, Christmas, the vegetarian option to the turkey was nut roast. That was it. You loved it, liked it or loved it. Now, when you, over the last two or three years, it's been noticeable that the alternative offer, while probably not good enough yet, is extraordinary step on in terms of the diversity of vegetarian food that you can have and the sheer effort that's gone into making it delicious and exciting as well. So I think that trend is happening. I'll be very careful about trying to big brother it from the centre, but making it accessible, desirable to people, absolutely, it will happen. So I, I just wanted to make a point, but I do think though we've still got a massive job to do in getting the message over about the urgency and immediacy about supplying enough food. Because it, how can you, in a way, have that message in a country where you could two for the price of one, mm -hmm. or you know you can buy a whole bunch of bananas for a pound or something? Mm. So I mean I understand that people they are uh, worried about food prices rising. But it's very hard to convey the importance of food and the value of food where in, you're in a society like that where people can leave things on their plates or not eat the whole of the meal mm. because, you know, it's kind of optional well, for us. Can, can so you, that message is, I think, important to get across, and I don't know how. Well, this isn't particularly <laughs> science, but can you have ever cheaper food and truly value it? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? And I think, but it is one is for no? an exhibit. I don't, well, I don't think you can, because I think value of food is, is, is a difficult thing to get hold of. So you can, for example, go to people in very poor areas and introduce a new food that's highly nutritious, but they won't eat it, you know, in some cases. But we don't because eat this. We don't like this. You know, we don't eat this. It's not part of our culture. Mm. So there is a very, again, a complex thing about valuing food that's part of people's choices, as you say. And it's hard to get in, get really handles on that. OK, yes, gentlemen at the, the back corner. I, I, may start, I know there are some farming and some industry representatives, so I may start putting questions to you, uh, so beware. Yes. Hi, I'm interested to get the panel's view on whether we have the right balance between innovation and regulation. So it seems to me that science is opening up incredible possibilities in terms of how we innovate our food, innovate the mm. supply chain, become more productive, all the things we've heard about, which is absolutely fantastic. But at the same time, many of the things that have maybe given science a bad name are the unintended consequences of previous innovations, where 
after the fact, we've realized the negative side effects of pesticides, or we're starting to learn about the impacts on human health of the antibiotics and food. So where do we draw the line, and, and what's the right amount of precautionary principle versus actually the need just to innovate faster to address the nine billion challenge? I think that, that for me, is the real crux. Well, do we need to go yeah. faster, or do we need to go slower? Yeah, of course, and feeding cow protein to, to cows turned out to be a really bad idea um, as, as well. I mean, the, the, this does, you know, I'm going to come to you first on this. We, we need to go faster. Faster. <laughs> faster, wiser. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, but, but, you know, we can't slow down, that's but, for sure. But, but uh, I th can you address his point? I mean, you know, the mistakes have been made uh, in the past because we trust, yeah. arguably left too much trust with the scientists. I don't know if, if that's a fair, a fair um, summary of what that situation was, whether it was too much trust with scientists or too much listening to certain fractions with very loud voices, and I'm not sure that that's the same thing. Tom. I do think we're risk-averse generally, though, and I think personally in Europe and in, in, we are risk-averse compared to, for example, America, the USA. GM is one of the biggest innovations that happened in agriculture, and a huge number of countries are using it, and we are not. Those people haven't all died. Mm. You know? right. I, I feel very strongly about this. I, I think an industry typically gets the regulation it deserves. So I would be very harsh on the, the food and farming industry, of which I'm a participant, and say, if we'd actually be more proactive at managing certain issues like pesticides, like animal welfare, we wouldn't have ended up with more the draconian, well, I would say draconian, but the tough like regulation we have now, which often is not particularly well thought through. It's been brought in a little bit of crisis mode to respond to an issue. But fundamentally, if we'd been a more proactive industry seeking out a better future, good for our shareholders, but also good for planet and people at the same time, we would have got better regulation. We would be innovating harder and faster as we all aspire to do and we all need to do. So I'm not going to throw any, bri throw any bricks at NGOs in here or any bricks at science or at government. We as an industry need to take a little bit more responsibility for creating that better future. And it's doubly important right now as we step into this world of personalisation of food, of artificial intelligence, of robots and everything else, we have seen nothing like the debate with, that we've had in the past as to the future debate. And unless we as an industry are absolutely on the front foot, creating a positive sense that we will use those technologies responsibly, we'll get another raft of draconian regulation, which I guarantee won't be particularly good either, but it'll be our fault. Yeah. And people are generally frequently frightened of the power of science, aren't they? Mm. Uh, and, and, but, but we accept it if it delivers us what we consider to be unalloyed goods like uh, you know more efficient cars or, or better smartphones but in food we're not convinced that it's an unalloyed good and therefore we have suspicion of it i think that's partly what uh, and, and therefore we, we we regulate and the more power you have gene editing being a classic mm -hmm. example i think we're about to see a huge mm. debate about this because technically it's not um genetic modification but that isn't really that misses the point of what concerns people about gm which is the power of science and i think mm. we're going to see a huge pushback Sorry, Brian, i just want to make a brief emerging market comment i suppose where policy and regulation is much weaker um, and safeguarding those, those sort of organisations or the bottom of the pyramid communities who are the people actually end up spraying the pesticide that, um, without the correct pe uh, protective gear. But I do think that society's watching, so I'm personally, I think the rise of social media and, and, and the NGO voice means that companies are m way more concerned about their reputations being found out 
So I feel a little bit more comfortable that they're, they're forced into more responsible behaviour. Andrew, I think um, one, one thing I'd like to say is the, the idea of um, kind of autonomous drones is interesting, um, where instead of, um, if, if you identify a, a small infestation in a field, you can actually send a drone out and just spray a very small selection of a field as opposed to a farmer taking out a tractor and going up and down with a, maybe a fleet of tractors. So I think the analogy is... Um, if someone in New York gets a headache, you feed everybody with aspirin in New York to, to solve the problem. Um, you know, that kind of innovation is being stalled at the moment through regulation. You can't, you can't take off a drone and land it with a lower weight, so you can't put liquid underneath it. And I think there's other regulations oh. about... Yeah, I'm not sure whether that's a US one or a UK one. Um, but I know the guys um, are, are lobbying the, the government to, to change this because of aerial spraying laws and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, I, what interests me is um, kind of you don't see many... Kickstarter projects on the internet for agriculture. They're all like the next generation of Fitbit and stuff. You know, mm. I'm hoping that the Science Museum is going to kind of kickstart some of these ideas. Mm. You know, I met the guys at, at UCL recently and they said, we, we want some ideas for IoT projects. And I said, well, why don't you put IoT. internet things? So part of their computer science project is to develop something that involves... It's sensing, actuating, and doing some analytics in between. Um, these guys are doing their computer science project and... They said, we want them to do something that's, you know, modern. He said, well, why don't you kind of convince them to do something that's an agri agricultural focus as well? I think Rothamsted are involved in yeah. that mm -hmm. idea as well. So, it's, you know, it's not just about leaving your PhD and becoming the next Fitbit or Jawbone or, or other kind of devices. You know, well, what about Fitbits for animals? You know, where's that going to go? So the, I, I think I've not really answered the regulation no, side. I think you have to yeah. do so much and then it self-regulates a lot of the time. Thank you. Yes. Lady at the back. Yep. So do we think that the best way forward for innovation to avoid any future mistakes, such as uh, feeding cows the wrong things, would be to encourage, as seems to be the way forward at the moment, collaborative R&D and collaborative innovation between scientists and industry and the farmers themselves? Yeah, so absolutely. So what, one of the things we're doing at Rothstone, and I'm sure many other organisations are following a similar trend, is to engage much more early in the thinking and the development of our science programmes. And that means not just with, with beneficiaries of what we um, are mm. hoping to you know, make the improvements for, but with societies and having public de debates and dialogues to understand really where are the concerns. And it comes back to the point I made earlier. You can't put yourselves in the minds of everybody else. You can only understand that when you enter a real dialogue and mm. exchange and understand where they're coming from. And if you understand that early, then you can co-develop solutions, which is a much more powerful place to be, and is partly the answer about this innovation thing. The difficulty is disruptive innovations, I think, because they take everyone by surprise. They're the sort of thing where people say, why didn't we think of that before? You know, mm. but they are, by nature, something totally new. And that's a little bit more tricky to deal with, but I think that does need a huge amount of discussion at the time that they come out. <laughs> to explain to people benefits. You talk about engagement. Is this something a science museum could actually do? Yeah, within the Within the agricultural <laughs> display, there can always yeah. be a, an area that yes. changes every month that says, you know, such, such the, looking yeah. at this, what do you think? That's yeah. something, you know, that, that, that really well, yeah. welcomes people yeah, in. Yeah, that airs That's topics and takes views on that because it's hugely important now. And, and sorry to say, working with, with, with people on the ground means that you can scale because often we, we, we have relations, very close relationships with four research organisations globally. 
and often we find that some of their ideas look fantastic in, in their laboratories or anything, but actually when you go and put it on the ground and look Doesn't at scale and real conditions, mm. it, they're, they're not as effective as they might think they are. Okay, people are getting braver. Hands are coming up. Yeah, the lady uh, there, so uh, nice and punchy with the questions and the answers. Yes, madam? Um, one of the areas that keeps on coming up is obviously the cost of food, but and technology has been used to increase yields and all the rest. One place that technology seems to be very slow on is the true cost and how we measure environmental impact. So in the example about the cheap chicken and the expensive green vegetable, mm. the cheap chicken has a huge environmental impact, chemicals, antibiotics, uh, whatever. The green vegetable might be creating soil structure, slowing water, cleaning mm. water, all sorts of other things that are not rewarded in terms of the productivity of that land. When can we get to a stage where those two things are measured so that they can be rewarded or fined, whichever mm. way you want to do it, so the true cost of food is accounted for? It comes back to this question of really understanding sustainability. I mean, how many people understand even the term sustainable intensification? How many people understand what organic means compared to other forms of sustainable farming? So there is problems with understanding. But there is a huge amount of data, and people can measure a lot of metrics. The problem is, who waits? Who waits the importance of different things and makes the final judgment call? Well, the, 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 currently yeah. the market does, or a regulator. Exactly. So there's no sort so, of virtue uh, waiting, is there? Yes, yeah, so that there, there has to be... I think there you have to reach higher up, almost to governments and policies, to change things. It's not... It, and science can play a role in that. We can all play a role in that. But and and education sort of, as well. And education. Yeah. Yes. Can I just say that there, yes. are, there are agribusinesses now looking at environmental P&Ls, so in the same way that Adidas started that. We know that we, our, of our profitability, 200 million of that last year was down to ecosystem services. So the world's bees, yeah. for instance, yeah. that, that it's been calculated in, the, in, the, in they, they, they pollinate a third of the world's plants. Yeah. Yeah. They create $300 billion worth of free services to all the food that you're eating and the clothes that you're wearing. Yeah. So, so it, this it's whole coming. natural capital debate. Very quickly, if you would, if it's a comment, otherwise I want to pass on. Yeah, lady, <laughs> no, being covered, gentleman there, and then gentleman at the back, and then this gentleman here. Good morning. Um, my question was really about how do you retain the words healthy and natural with science at the same time? Because <laughs> that's what I think consumers will, will choose upon. And at the moment, governments tend to look back to science to verify that healthy and natural exist in the foods they buy. Okay, I mean, so I'm going to put this slightly to you, Mike, because yeah. I always accuse the retailers of <laughs> overselling over, over uh, nature because mm. it goes down well. I mean, are you ever going to put a man on a white coat and a syringe on your, or a woman indeed, on your on your packaging? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this all comes down to for the consumer being clear about the value proposition. So, I think talking about science on the front of a pack that people typically take seven seconds to make a, a decision at the point of purchase. If you look at they absorb the cost of the product, only 50% of people picking a product off the shelf actually look at the cost of the item that they're put, putting in there. You've got very limited time at a point of sale to make a point about all the complexity, the science, the social, the environmental impacts we are talking about a moment ago behind a product. The only way to capture people's attention, and I think we had the discussion a moment ago, is by showing people how the, something that's good for nature is good for them personally. This linking of natural... Sorry, healthy for you with good for nature is the promised land. And if you can make that linkage and do it with scale, again, I, I will push us to go beyond the 10% that really get this to the other 70% of society. If you can link 
natural, good for nature, with good for health, you would push through that barrier and reach scale. That's what we want to do. I think just a, a quickie there, though, is that one of the technologies that is being developed, for example, for animals, is being able to sense, um, having sensors on animals that will tell you if your animal is stressed in any way. Mm. Or, and that's been really important for understanding housing, husbandry, all sorts of aspects of how we handle animals. So I think there is a role for science here as well in terms of the type of information we're getting back, which will help us understand the quality of the environment, for example, and things like that. So I think there is a route we're all trying to move down. It's, it is a complicated one, mm. but I think the sustainability thing is now in the forefront of everybody's minds. But it's how you get the information and how you make those decisions, really. A lot of these things will presumably <laughs> emerge from being the norm of production rather than being on the yes, packet. I mean, right, you look yes. at something like, you know, farrowing crates for, for, for pigs. You know, they just became the norm of production rather than something that was, you know, the customer was actually demanding mm. yeah. and was on the packaging. And they will become... The and the role of the media, not to be forgotten either. Because yes, for, every, for every good thing somebody reports in the media, then, then the opposite comes out the next day. So I think that's extremely confusing for... Mm consumers yeah. as well. And just a thing uh, just occurred to me on the, on the sort of health and regulation thing that I worked, did a lot with a, a company, someone you will know, the uh, IFR Institute of Food Research in Norwich who are working, mm -hmm. who have got some pretty good claims for their uh, Beneforti broccoli being genuine, having genuine health claims. But actually to be able to put those on the packet, they have been working with the European Union I think uh, for more than six years now. Mm. And in some ways you'd say it's great that it should be there should be a really high bar for genuine health claims on the packet. But to be honest, the bar is so high, they've, you know, they've come close to sort of giving up to ever mm. get any value out of this. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting conundrum, that, about, yeah. about health and health claims. Uh, yes, sir. So yes. Mike Cumming. Thank you. I want to take up a point that uh, Mike Barry made uh, fairly early on, that uh, it's up to the industry, really, to stand up and lobby for itself. Uh, now, in this country, we've got 65 million consumers. We've got 100,000 uh, farmers. And we've got 10 who have 10 customers. And they are the major multiples. Yes. And it, it's really up to uh, the, the major buyers, uh, the food suppliers to those consumers, uh, to stand up and speak loud, both to government and to population mm. at large, on issues such as diet. There's no such thing as bad foods, only bad diets. And also on legislation. Now, the power of uh, the likes of Marks and Spence is immense. Thirty years ago, they declared they would uh, take only one particular variety of potato. There was outrage in the potato growing industry. How dare uh, Marks and Spencers dictate to growers what they should grow. What do growers do now? They listen to what the supermarkets uh, want to provide and the, the supermarkets are getting that information from what goes off the shelves. So really, I put the, the comment back to you that it is your role really mm -hmm. both to educate the public in what is available, how it is produced and to buy only what is safe.
And ch challenge accepted. I think, I think I made very clear we are part of this industry. We have got to be part. And again, with scale comes responsibility. So if there's 10 big food retailers and there's several hundred thousand farmers, we have to be the ones that lead. And again, Tom and I have been talking about something called the Consumer Goods Forum. It brings together the world's biggest food and drink companies pretty competitively to work on these issues, whether it's halving food waste, stopping deforestation and supply chains, stopping forced labour, shifting to low-carbon refrigeration. We have to find a way where Tesco's and Walmart, huge competitors, can work together to provide leadership. Nestle, Unilever, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. These guys try and beat each other ferociously in the marketplace every day. But on these issues, they need to stand up and be counted and set bold, demanding targets and then support their supply chains to get there. So challenge absolutely accepted. And if, you, if you put that message back to the producers, they will respond mm. very quickly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I want to put a, a question to people in the room. I, I, I'm going to ask, what, are, there some, are there some farmers in the room? I've seen someone with NFU, but it was mutual. Um, <laughs> yes, well, uh, you, I'd like to ask you, so what would, can you take him the mic, please? What would you like to see an exhibition on, uh, on, uh, in the Science Museum about food and farming? What would you like to see in that exhibition? Well, I suppose there's a number of things I'd like to see. I'm, I'm, um, I'm in my mid-40s now, and in the last 30-odd years, there's been huge change, particularly in the last 15 years. Um, I took my family to the Science Museum in January, and um, I thought the display was a was good, but it was representing what farming was like 30, 40 years ago. This is the one that's ago. just gone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. so it was I'm, beautiful, I'm, but historic. I'm, I'm also here with my Felix Cobbled Trust hat on. We've, we've uh, supported the new display, which we're very pleased to do. But I think it's so important that the, the new display represents the agricultural industry in a way that, as farmers, we see it now. It, we, you've all said that... Um, the, the, the food buying public are, are rather far removed from uh, how their food is produced, where it comes from. You've touched on food waste. I think that's a terrible and, and uh, the amount that's wasted. And I think generally food is too cheap. There's too much choice and, and something needs to be done about that. That's not for now, perhaps. But, but going back to the display, there's a huge amount of technology We've got wonderful innovations, not just in, in the mechanisation that we have, but in the products that we're able to use, the, the, the inputs, uh, variable rate seed technology, variable rate fertiliser technology. We've touched on drones, uh, efficiencies from um, GPS technology in terms of steering <coughs> and how we're applying some of these products. And um, it's, a, it's a very exciting time. And I would like to say, too, that touching on Mike's point from earlier on, that science is such an important part of agriculture. The research, not just into, into <coughs> products that we're using to help produce better crops, but new varieties of crops, um, how we're <coughs> managing the land. And I do think it's important to, to if, if we're going to grow an acre of wheat, we need to grow it to produce the maximum yield. There's going to be more mouths to feed. So, uh, again, science going back to that, it's just such a vital part of it. So a modern display showing how food and is produced and how farming is really going on. And a display that farmers could actually enjoy and come and learn from and see best practice. Oh, this person's doing that or the other. Yes, I think or, so, because as, as an industry, we're probably quite good at talking to one another and telling ourselves about the various problems that we, we have. But I think it could, it, it could be a... It could be a useful place for, for people to come and have a look. So it, I think there's an op a real opportunity here for something that's absolutely world-class. Uh, uh, Tom, just a really important brief point in there. 
Britain used to have a world-class extension service that used to translate yes. innovation in science and engineering into yeah. the practical world of farmers. That went 20 years ago, for whatever reason. We're now at a place where sometimes the big retails can drive it, but actually I think as a state, as a nation, we need to have some kind of extension support to unlock the potential of this technology revolution and help it be real for farmers in the field. Okay. Uh, another farm here, I also want to ask the JCB gentleman something to this. <laughs> I would like to ask the panel whether the title is Feeding Tomorrow, whether you really think that we can feed tomorrow. We have seen, uh, thank you, we have seen uh, a plateauing of um, yields. Um, we've seen uh, the ability to um, intensify in terms of animal production reaching um, a level because of welfare concerns. So can we feed tomorrow at a price that is affordable to mm. people. Okay, and I'll sort of punch the answer on this. Uh, can we feed tomorrow? And so uh, I, I think so. I think the, the challenge is um, the, the, where the mouths need feeding are and the accessibility to technology. So we've got, we don't have a problem here, but we have access to the technology. It's still quite expensive, but it's too, and it's still too expensive for small farms in Africa to take advantage of it. Um, so I think it's about growing food in the place where the mouths are going to be China and, and Africa and the other developing countries is, is our biggest problem. In, in America, they're, they're turning corn into fuel, for goodness sakes, instead of using it to eat. You know? Mainly because they've got so much of it and they're exactly, the, the over corn growers it. growing yeah, uh, and happy. Um, uh, Andrew, can we feed tomorrow? Partly <laughs> agree with that. I think we can, but I think part, partly we agree with that too. Is that the plateau is not over in Africa, right? I mean, there their yields are still very suboptimal. So if we want to really feed tomorrow, we have to enhance the yields in those countries that are suboptimal. But even in our own place, where yields are plateauing and have plateaued for a while, the question is, are we prepared for more disruptive technology? Are we prepared to adopt really new innovations? Because that's what we're going to need now. We've done the low-hanging fruit bit, and that took a long time. To, to really push it up, are we prepared for that? I think we're going to need them. I just wanted to ask a technology company like JCB, what would you like to see in this, this, this exhibition microphone? I think for us, uh, productivity is key and how we can make machines more productive. As a country, engineering is a challenge. Next year's year of the engineer, I think how we can inspire engineers of the future is something very important to us as a business. I mean, I, I go to... I went to SEMA in Paris earlier this year. I'll go to Agritechnica earlier next year, and there's so many innovations on machinery and really? so many ways that uh, the mach well, machinery helps farm the land and how that ties into science and innovations. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, okay. And just out of interest, is that machinery now embracing sort of sustainability, like you know, low, low ground pressure and things like this? Not all about productivity. There are things that are about um, sustainable agenda. And we're, I mean, we can continuously looking at ways uh, to develop machines. I think sometimes when you talk about disruptive technologies, sometimes customers aren't ready for disruption. Mm. And sometimes it can be, um, uh, we changed our most popular machine into agriculture last year, the telescopic handler, and came out with a new transmission. So it was great on the road and great in the yard. And that's great for some customers but some customers will still want to buy the same product, so we'll have to produce both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So can I do the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the autonomous tractors innovation it happened kind of 20 years ago. I, I only learned about it last year when I went to one of the shows in Cambridge. And um, I, I, John Deere said kind of that was, that was the, the last really big technological change in agriculture. You know, everyone embraced it. You know, well, not everyone, a lot of people embraced it. Um, but, and it was 
really good benefit to everybody because it reduced fuel costs. It enabled you to make best use of the land that was available because you GPS tracked the whole land. And then you only drive over the same tram lines and all the equipment can use the same tram lines. So you reduce compaction, which allegedly increases yield by 10% maybe. Um, so the, the technology stuff, you know, things that um, the nitrogen sensors that go on the top of the cab, I worry about those because they're being developed by the nitrogen suppliers. So, you know, it's self-regulation and all that. But, um, yeah, some of the stuff that's around is phenomenal. And, and I think the Science Museum is going to do a great job of talking about that. I started learning about agriculture. I knew all about inter-control routines and everything for 20 years and then started looking at agriculture a year ago. And it's been a change in my world. You know, I now understand a lot more about this World Health Authority, World Health Organization worry of feeding the population and soil, I've been watching videos on soil technologies mm. and soil sensing mm. and stuff and it, it, there's so much happening um, and needs to happen uh, and the technology is a huge part of it. Can, it I, can I just say, so very, very briefly as well, I think there is a change in scale too because if you think about how we've gone in the past to get our productivity up, it was massive machines, you know, large scale production. But we're moving now much more towards precision agriculture. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's a, a huge scope here for engineers to come up with smaller scale and micro machine type things, mm -hmm. which will manage things in completely different ways. Great, you know, opportunity. On that note, <coughs> excuse me, on that note of great enthusiasm, I am I'm going to wind it up because we, were, we started a little late, we've gone over time, but that's because there was such a lot of uh, enthusiasm and uh, good questions in the room. Uh, so just to say to the panel, uh, Bryony, Andrew, Angela and Mike, thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Thank you.